You're listening to Pastor Rory Rogers as he teaches through the book of Acts. If you have your Bibles ready, let's join him now. He went about the synagogues and spoke boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading concerning the things of the kingdom of God. But when some were hardened and did not believe, but spoke evil of the way before the multitude, he departed from them and withdrew the disciples, reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. And this continued for two years so that all who dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. Now God worked unusual miracles by the hands of Paul so that even handkerchiefs or aprons were brought from his body to the sick and the diseases left them and the evil spirits were, uh, were out of them. And then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists took it upon themselves to call the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, We exercise you by the Jesus whom Paul preaches. Also, there were seven sons of Sceva, Jewish chief priests who did so. And the evil spirit answered and said, Jesus I know and Paul I know, but who are you? Then the men in whom, and then the man in whom the evil spirit was leapt on them, overpowered them, and prevailed against them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. This became known both to all Jews and Greeks dwelling in Ephesus, and fear fell on them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. And many who had believed came confessing and telling their deeds. Also, many of those who'd practiced magic brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted up the value of them, and it totaled 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed. And when these things were accomplished, Paul purposed in his spirit, or the spirit, when he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia to go to Jerusalem, saying, After I have been there, I must also see Rome. So incredible revival happening in the city of Ephesus. We see just the pagan and those involved in sorcery and witchcraft, idol worship. Uh, we see them coming to Christ in great numbers and denouncing the things that they once worshipped, burning all bridges to their past. They would take them back to those old ways of worshipping. And as that revival has, had been going on for three years, Paul was in Ephesus, reasoning in the synagogue, and then for two and a half years there in the school of Tyrannus, where the word of the Lord spread throughout all the region of area. Now that's a fruitful time of ministry in a town. But now Paul knows it's time to move on, and we see that he has this real heart in verse 21 to get to Rome. Really, that's the target area in his vision. As John MacArthur Jr. made this observation, Paul had not yet visited the imperial city in his ministry. But because of the strategic importance of the church in Rome, he could stay away no longer. In addition, Paul intended to use Rome as a jumping point for ministry in the strategic region of Spain. This simple declaration, I must also see Rome, marked a turning point in Acts. From this point on, Rome became Paul's goal. He would ultimately arrive there as a Roman prisoner. So neat to remember the key verse of the book of Acts, Acts chapter 1 verse 8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit's come upon you and you will be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and Judea and the uttermost parts of the world. And really that's an outline statement for the whole book. At the beginning of the book, chapters 1 through 7, you see the ministry primarily being in Jerusalem. Then in chapter 8, you see that revival going north into Judea and Samaria. 
and up into Antioch. And then by chapter 13, Antioch had become the hub of missions as Paul and Barnabas are sent out up in the region of Galatia, second missionary journey up into the region of Macedonia and Europe. And then finally, we're going to see by the end of the book, really that uttermost part of the then known world being reached as Paul finally makes it there to Rome. Eventually, church history tells us making it to Spain, uh, really that edge to the ocean edge there, what was thought of as, as it. And, um, and so Paul says, man, I've got to go. My heart's desire is missions. I have the same heart of Jesus to bear the banner of the gospel and to get the word into every ear that can hear. And so verses uh, 22, he sent into Macedonia two of those who ministered to him, Timothy and Erastus, but he himself stayed in Asia for a time. They went to collect that offering for Judea we read about in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. And about that time, there arose a great commotion about the way. There it is again, that we were called the way back in the day. For a certain man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Diana, brought, uh, brought no small profit to the craftsmen. And he called them together with the workers of similar occupation and said, dot, dot, dot. We'll get into that uh, in one second. So we see this Demetrius, he was a silversmith, a craftsman who would make idols and shrines in honor of the great goddess Diana, what they thought was the great goddess Diana. And that kind of just gives us a reminder and a snippet into what that city, Ephesus, was like. It was a pagan city, the center of worship of Artemis or Diana as we know her. The temple of Artemis or the temple of Diana was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. This temple was 425 feet long by 225 feet wide, had 120 columns, each one of them 70 feet high. And the focal point of that temple was this image of Diana, which was one of the most sacred images in the sacred world. It was a big black stone that had been found in Ephesus, beginning the legend that Zeus had dropped it from heaven. And so the Ephesians fashioned together from this rock a multi-breasted, squatting black idol who was known as the goddess of fertility, the huntress of the woods, as many of her images were her holding a bow and arrow, and the goddess of the nightlight, the moon. You might say, worshiping Diana was a bust. (laughs) Or you might not. Really, this idol was was ancient and it was so special to the Ephesians. Ephesus was the center of pagan superstition. We see tons of demon possession. We see tons of witchcraft. Even just the guys that were coming out of that as they burned their books, it totaled about $4 million uh, in our day and age. Uh, Ephesus was famous for shrines and charms that were infallible remedies for sickness, bringing children to those that were childless, and ensure ensure success in every undertaking. We know that Ephesus was an immoral city. The surrounding area around the temple was a right of asylum. Any criminal could go to base, home base, and be safe, basically. And the temple possessed hundreds of prostitutes who uh, had these sacred worship rituals before Diana. The uh, weeping philosopher, Heraclitus, 
spoke of uh, Ephesus, that no one could live in Ephesus without weeping over its immorality. So kind of a similar city to a Rome, kind of a similar city to a Corinth, a similar city to Athens in so many ways. But something we're going to see here that we began to read into was as Paul and the 12 disciples that he'd reached out to in Ephesus and those that would come and listen to him at the school of Tyrannus for two and a half years, as each one of these people were transformed by the gospel and sent out into Asia to bear that good news of Jesus Christ. There in Ephesus, gospel transformation was taking place in an incredible pace, and the effect was being felt in the wallets of many of the businesses, specifically those that made shrines to the goddess Diana. And so he said there, this uh, Demetrius, perhaps the leader of the local union, this guild there, calls the fellow workers together in verse 25, the, those of similar occupation, and says, men... You know that we have our prosperity by this trade. Moreover, you see and hear that not only at Ephesus, but throughout almost all Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away many people, saying that they are not gods which are made with hands. So not only in this trade of, is this trade of ours in danger of falling into disrepute, but also the temple of the great goddess Diana may be despised and her magnificence destroyed, whom all Asia and the world worship. Now, when they heard this, they were full of wrath and they cried out saying, great is Diana of the Ephesians. So Paul, in his preaching there in uh, the school of Tyrannus, his preaching had dealt with the logic of worshiping some idol that had been made with man's hands. No doubt, going back to Isaiah chapter 44, where he, Isaiah speaks of the man that goes into the wood and chops down the tree and, and drags the tree home. And with part of that tree, he cuts it up and makes firewood out of it and he cooks his supper. You know, and with part of the tree, he gets his whittling knife out and he forms a cute little idol and puts it up on his, you know, mantle or his hearth in his house and begins to worship it and trust in it. And that's just foolishness, Isaiah tells us. And no doubt, Paul would just preach, uh, the, the truth. The truth and love there in Ephesus. And as people began to hear the word of God, they began to say, well, what's any different about that thing carved out of wood and this thing made out of silver in the likeness of Diana or this shrine that's similar to the temple uh, that we've been worshiping at? It's, it's foolishness. And any logic would tell you that. As Paul said, man-made gods are no gods at all. Well, if that message is going around, it's a problem if you earn your living by selling man-made gods. You put your food on the table and you, you provide for your family with the strength of the sale of this thing. And so Demetrius had some pretty legitimate concerns. If Paul continues this, our trade will lose its good name. Kind of like that. You know, we have the best quality idol products in all of Asia, you know. Lord forbid we lose our good name. Or the prestige of the temple will be discredited. Or Diana, God, goddess forbid, robbed of her divine majesty. There's major impact going on in this city and the businesses are feeling it. Good question for us today. How could we tell if the gospel was transforming our city, Prineville? or Redmond, or Crook County itself. 
How could we tell if the gospel was moving in upon the government and the authorities in the area and the economics of the area? How would it be obvious to us? Kind of a neat thing to imagine. I mean, as we look at this town in the last 10 years, what has changed? How has the gospel transformed this town? 20 years, 30 years. Some of you have been here for that long. How has the gospel transformed this town? I don't know. (laughs) Maybe in a radical way. Man, my prayer is, is that an obvious change would take place from people being saved and sanctified by the Holy Spirit. And that such a radical, dramatic change would happen that, you know, the economics in the town would feel it. The police force would feel it. The businesses and, and man, the, the, the people could tell. Man, I don't know what it is, but ever since, you know, those Calvary Chapel people started going out, preaching the gospel and loving and serving on people, there's been a change. You know, it's, it's interesting sometimes to just think about the idols in our town and, and pray that the Lord would cast those idols down and crack them and break them. And just, you know, I'm always just praying, Lord, what are the idols in this town? And this morning I was driving down to the church kind of early. I had to go back home. So I was just in my pajamas basically <laughs> and driving down to the church. And, and I was just like, Lord, just show me idols in this town. You know, and for some people, they're idols for others. They're not. But, you know, saw a guy running on the side of the road, you know, and I was like, oh, man, for some people running is their idol and they won't go fellowship with the saints or with the Lord. But, man, they'll run 10, 12 miles or something like that. Oh, Lord, take that guy's idol of running away and may he come to know you and come into fellowship. Maybe he's going to church today. I don't know. But, you know, uh, and then, you know, a hunter goes by. Not that hunter, not all hunting is idolatry, but for some it is. And man, could you imagine uh, Dave Vaughn taxidermy saying in October and November, man, I don't know what it is. We had about 10% less elk come in, but I've been noticing at church 10% more men serving during hunting season. They're involved and they've decided to take, you know, whatever, something, something like that. I'm able to tell that there's revival happening in, in the hearts of men and women. You know, imagine if one day we drove by the Blockbuster and we saw a going out of business sign. I enjoy a movie just like everybody, you know. But could you imagine? Oh, no way. <laughs> Prophetic? I don't know. Pathetic? Maybe. I don't get on that edge of town very often. They don't let me on that side of the tracks. Okay, let's, you know, okay. You know, hopefully it's for this reason. Man, I don't know what it is, but we've had a huge dramatic loss in, in uh, sales, not because of Redbox or Netflix, but because these Christians are, man, they're just, they don't have any time for movies because they're loving each other. They're serving each other. They're worshiping the Lord. They just, man. Ironic, I'm sure. But also at about, you know, what was it? It was, uh, it was 7.50 this morning when I was driving around. But, I, you know, I've noticed no cars on the street. Every other day of the week, you can hardly get across 3rd Street. 
And I'm like, it's like a ghost town. It's like, did the rapture happen? Lord, where was, what was I? What did I do wrong, Lord? You know, the guy running and me, you know. And uh, I was like, funny how, wh- where are all the cars? Where are all the people? Lord, may it be Sunday morning. It's just traffic and merging and I got to get to church, you know. And, you know, people getting to church. Wednesday night's the same thing. It's funny, you know, five o'clock to six, it's cars getting home from work, cars getting home, and then I'll be driving to get to church, and it's like, where is everybody? But man, may people be in felt, may it change the community. We've had way less, you know, DUIs since, you know, revival started happening in this town. Man, let's pray that direction. I feel like I don't even have a big enough mind or heart to dream the dreams of God. I mean, I'm like, driving, Lord, show me, just what could you do in this town? My favorite place to go is the viewpoint, and I'll just pray over the cars driving around and the people. I'm like, man, every one of those cars has at least one person in it. And look at all these businesses, and Lord, I don't even know how to pray. I don't even know how to pray. But man, Lord, let, it, let your gospel just change us in such a way that businesses are changed and governing a Authorities are changed and just this town is different and would never be the same. Lord, if you can do it in Ephesus, a huge city of paganism and witchcraft and sorcery, or you can do it here. Will you guys join me in praying? If you can't make it to the pulse on Thursday night, then pray in your heart. May we pray without ceasing uh, for these dreams, the, really the dreams of God that none should perish would come true. For Demetrius, man, the gospel transformation in the town had hit his pocketbook. It had affected his Excel spreadsheet. You know, they were operating in the, in the red. And uh, man, it, it was tough on him. You look at uh, a revival that happened on the island of Wales back in the 1900s through the preaching ministry of Robert Murray McShane. And as he just preached, lovingly preached the gospel and preached the truth Pretty soon, such a revival swept across Wales that all of the taverns shut down. And people were just saying, man, I don't need, uh, I don't need to go to the bottle for hope and for fulfillment. I've got Jesus. And you know how many anti-tavern sermons Robert Murray McShane preached? Zero. He condemned the tavern. He preached Jesus and the hope in him. And that was attractive to people. And they went towards Christ. Other revivals in the, in the you know, great awakening here in the United States. Man, uh, so much so that uh, revival would happen within the mines. And the mules that the, that the miners used to use to haul the coal and the ore or whatever, they quit working because all of their commands had been, they'd been taught with cuss words. And guys would get saved and these mules wouldn't function anymore. They didn't know the cuss words. So they had to retrain these mules using pure language. God was doing a work in this nation. Nowadays, what could it be? I don't know, you know. This gas pump doesn't work unless you, you know, hit it hard enough. I don't know. But Lord, change this town. If you take away the demand, there will be no supply needed. And it's just so true that before we have social reformation, we've got to have spiritual transformation. Work that only the Spirit of God can do in the hearts of individuals. And man, I go down to the Oasis at least once a week. There are hurting, broken people down there. But another thing that would be used to describe 90% of them, hard. 
hard people. And I'm just so discouraged when I go down there, like preaching the gospel. And it's hard. Pray for Thursdays, but pray for Rich every day. Because people need spiritual transformation. Let's pray for that ministry that the Lord would do a revival um, in the oasis. But, uh, man, it's, it's changing Ephesus. I believe that his word, you know, uh, the gospel, as Romans tells us, I'm not ashamed of it because it's the power of God unto salvation. And may he, he use that powerful message, the good news, euangelio, good news of the battlefield. And then, uh, so Demetrius is kind of working up his union buddies on, man, what could happen if Paul's message kept continuing? And they just didn't know what to say at the end of verse 28. So they just all cried out saying, great is Diana of the Ephesians. So the whole city was filled with, note the word, confusion. And they rushed into the theater with one accord, having seized Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians, Paul's travel companions. And when Paul wanted to go into the people, the disciples would not allow him. Then some of the officials of Asia who were his friends sent to him, pleading that they would not venture, that he would not venture into the theater. And so 20 to 20 or 20 to 30,000 people could fit in this theater there in Ephesus. And so they all just rushed in. I mean, imagine this theater just packed with people chanting, great is Diana of the Ephesians. And imagine Paul saying, let me back there. Let me get in there. You know, let me uh, just preach. All I see is an opportunity to talk to a whole bunch of people, the gospel of Jesus Christ. But, you know, they're like, man, just save yourself. Don't go in there. But you got to love verse 32. Some in the theater cried out one thing and some cried out another thing for the whole assembly was confused. And most of them did not even know why they had come together. I mean, talk about mob mentality. You kind of get Luke's sense of humor here. He's just like, it was just crazy mob mentality. Guys walking down the street, going to the marketplace, and just everyone's, you know, kill them. Yeah, you know, where are we going? Just follow us. Okay, you know. And, and it's just crazy how people do that. They just follow the go with the flow mentality. And it's, it's kind of funny. Ben Franklin said, a mob is a monster with heads enough, but no brains. And that kind of seems to be what's happening here. They don't even know, I don't know what we're here for, but just start screaming. Okay, you know, people screaming one thing, people screaming another thing. And they drew Alexander out of the multitude, the Jews putting him forward. And Alexander motioned with his hand and wanted to make his defense to the people. And oftentimes they blame the Jews for something that was going down. So probably Alexander would... Uh, would uh, defend the Jews, but blame the Christians. And when they found out that he was a Jew, all with one voice cried out for about two hours, great is Diana of the Ephesians, and on and on and on. I love what John Stott said, that the only thing heathenism can do against the power of the gospel is chant itself hoarse. Man, we have the gospel, the inspired word of God that is so powerful and knows the thoughts and the intents of man. And our God has risen from the dead and it's very provable that he is so. And man, we have the spirit of God that can speak through us. We have a very reasonable, logical faith that like Paul, we can explain and demonstrate from the scriptures that Jesus is the Christ. 
But with heathens, man, let's just yell and get really loud and threaten people with, with mob-style violence. That's pretty much what they resorted to. And then we have in verse 35 that the city clerk, when the city clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, what man is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple guardian of the great goddess Diana and of the image which fell down from Zeus? Therefore, since these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rashly. So this clerk, kind of a politician guy, kind of a representative to Rome, who was the authority over Ephesus, stands up and says, guys, 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 calm down, calm down. Who doesn't know that that black rock fell out of heaven in the form of Diana for us? It's obvious. Don't worry about it. Everybody knows it. You know, what are you getting in a huff about? You know, don't act rashly. In verse 37, for you brought these men here who are neither robbers of temples nor blasphemers of your goddess. Therefore, if Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen have a case against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you have any other inquiry to make, it shall be determined in the lawful assembly. So two more things in verse 37. These guys are innocent. Everybody knows it. They're innocent. They haven't done anything wrong. They're not robbers and they haven't blasphemed Diana. So calm down. And if anybody has an issue with them, the third thing, just do it legally. Take it up amongst the court. Be civil. Come on. You know, this guy actually had a golden tongue. He quieted 30,000 people. He was able to get them to reason and kind of come off of this mobster type high and say there's legal means for all of this. And then verse 40, but if, but we are in danger of being called into question for today's uproar, there being no reason which we may give to, to account for this disorderly gathering. And so finally, his argument is, you guys, don't forget, we're under Rome and Roman law, and Rome doesn't like giant riots. We're going to have to give an account for this. If we don't have a reason, which we don't, then Rome is going to send a garrison down here. They're going to take away rights and privileges, and we're going to be hating life. So calm down. It's in everybody's best interest to just go home, sleep it off. If you got a problem with Paul and the disciples, take it up legally. And when he'd said these things, he dismissed the assembly. Interesting how they went into the arena, screaming and shouting, and no one really knew what was going on, and just come with us, you know? And then, you know, this, this guy, this clerk, he was able to calm him down and say, okay, this side of the building, move, <laughs> you know, move out this way. And just a nice uh, dismissal of the assembly. But something I just want to touch on here, I think it's a good word for us today, is in verse 37 where this clerk affirms the disciples' innocence. You know, there was a, a message that was being proclaimed in Ephesus that was having dramatic effect on the population and the government and the economics. And yet at no point was it attacking or hateful, disdainful, uh, dissing this temple, the goddess, or the people. It seems that Paul's message there in Ephesus was one of love, one of truth, one of reason, but not one of some kind of picketing, hateful, you know, um, purpose in that sense. 
I think we can learn from that in this day and age where there's many things that we can protest against and oftentimes we mar the name of Christ due to our lack of love and rather our presence of some sort of hatred towards an individual, rather a sin. And it puts a sour taste of Christ in people's mouth. And so, man, as we've got such issues as abortion and abortion clinics and abortion doctors, we really need to use tact and care in the way that we would protest this so that it doesn't hinder the gospel from going forth. We should be prayerful about how we could lovingly communicate the truth in love in those avenues so that even the abortion doctors could come to know Jesus as the Christ. Same with homosexual marriages. Of course, we're to be against those things scripturally, but that we might love the sinner and hate the sin. That at the end of the day, when the debate is done, the homosexuals would say, you know what? I don't agree with those Christian people, but man, they were sure loving. They were sure loving. They spoke the the truth to me and they didn't let me get away with anything, but they were loving. And that's attractive to me. And man, who knows that we might win some through that type of pleading. May we be loving and may, at the end of the day, may that accusation be, hey, 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 they were loving, you guys. They weren't dissing us. They weren't hateful towards us. They weren't calling us every foul name in the book to describe our way of life. They spoke the truth in love. They didn't compromise the truth of the gospel or the word of God. And you know what? I respect them for that. And I pray that as we have those types of relationships with, and, and it goes beyond homosexuality and abortions, it goes through, throughout the community in so many different areas. May we not judge people to the point of condemnation, crino, but may we judge people as fruit judgers and just say, hey, man, I love you and I see this in your life and let me help remove this blemish from your fruit. Let me help you because I love you. And so then we come into chapter 20 and we're just going to, Uh, go through verse 12 today. It says, After the uproar had ceased, Paul called the disciples to himself. He embraced them, and he departed to go to Macedonia. I love the way that Paul showed affection to these disciples. It says that he embraced them, or that he literally took them up in his arms. You get a glimpse of the love for the disciples here in Paul's life. How about you? How about your love for the disciples, for the believers, for your brothers and sisters in the Lord? On a chart, if you're going to kind of take your little note page there and kind of chart out your way of showing affection to the brothers and sisters in Christ, what would that chart look like? We're told in Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, and 1 Thessalonians that we're to greet one another with a holy kiss. Gets a little uncomfortable here in 2011. Fathers, protect your daughters. There's a lot of young high school guys that would like to capitalize on that scripture. But as culturally awkward as there's other cultures, I've been to Hungary and Brazil, and I've been in the churches there, and man, they're kissers, you know? And it's, it's actually quite a beautiful thing because it's pure, it's biblical, it's, it's true. And man, I come from a, a very affectionate church in Corvallis. No shortages of, of hugs. I even have a few bros that, man, when I see them and I'm united with them, it's just everything within me to, you know, I just hug and kiss on the cheek and just, man, pulled him back again and put my hand on the side of his face and just, so good to see you, brother. 
hug again. Man, I miss those guys. I've known them for years. Miss them. Love them. Have affection for them. And while not every one of us is like a total, you know, snuggler or something like that, um, surely there's a level of affection within Christianity that we can show one another, we can grow in that area to just say, hey, I love you. Let there be no doubt about that. You guys better be careful. Some of you are in the danger zone of getting some holy kisses from me. So just, you know, start neglecting me, be mean to me, do what you got to do, but it's coming. In John chapter 13, verse 34, we're just going to kind of look at some verses throughout the New Testament. You can flip to John. There's a few there. John 13, 34 and 35. Jesus says, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another as I've loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Such a rich text. We're going to notice in some of these, there's that word commandment. There's a new commandment I've given you. No longer do you have to keep every jot and tittle of the 613 laws given to us by Moses. You know, that's fulfilled in Christ. But now Jesus just tells us, hey, just love me with all your heart. Love me with all you got. Love your neighbor as yourself. Those are the commandments. That's going to be something that happens through relationship with Christ. That's the commandment. As I've loved you, love one another. How did Jesus love us? Laid down his life. Served us. You know, he looked over Jerusalem in his final week of earth and he said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I long to just, you know, bring you under my wings as a mother hen brings in her chicks, but you would not have it as he wept over Jerusalem. You know, God is a God that just, man, he longs for that intimate contact with us. And that we might love others in that way as well. In John chapter 15, verse 12, and and you can go ahead and flip there, but just want to touch on that last part of of the last verse. People will know we are the disciples of Jesus if we have love for one another. That's a great witness is our love. But John 15, 12, again, this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. And then in verse uh, 17 of John 15, these things I command you that you love one another. And then Romans 12, 10, be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love in honor, giving preference to one another. Man, with, as Christians, man, showing people that we're disciples of Jesus by our kind, affectionate to one another, like brotherly love with one another. You know, David and Jonathan had that kind of love. You read about it in 2 Samuel. And man, there's this one part where John makes David swear to him by the love that they have for each other. Swear to me, you know, if you love me, Man, that we might have that kind of love for each other, kindly, affectionate to one another, like brothers, and then giving preference to one another. I prefer you. I prefer you. Now, I'm not looking out for my own interests, as Philippians 2 says, but I'm looking out for the interests of others. Nothing of selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, I esteem others as better than myself. I prefer you. I'm affectionate towards you. I embrace you. Romans 13, 8 says that we're not to owe anything 
to anybody except to love one another. For he who loves another has fulfilled the law. Hey, bro, you don't owe me anything. Just love me. You got it, dude. (laughs) You know, just love me. Galatians 5.13 says, we've been called to liberty and freedom, but don't use this freedom as an opportunity for the flesh to sin, but rather as an opportunity through love to serve one another. And 1 John chapter 4, verse 20, it's really sobering. It says, if someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. A lot of hate within the church. A lot of justifying hate, you know, in our hearts and letting it simmer. You know, when Jesus says, man, if if you come to the altar and you know your brother has something against you, you're not right with that brother. Then you leave your gift at the altar and you go get it right. And once you've made it right, you come back and you offer that gift up. Because if you say, I love God, but you hate your brother, you are a liar. You're a liar. It goes on to say, he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he's not seen? And this commandment we have from him, that he who loves God must love his brother also. It's a commandment. It's the new commandment. Love each other. Be affectionate towards one another. Hug each other. Come on, guys. Lay down the pride Get a hug in there. And it's okay. You might not be a hugger. That's cool. But show affection some way. Phone call. Man, I was thinking about you today. It was so good to see you today. Just want you to know I love you, man. Love you just as much as Jesus loved you. I just pray for you every day. Be encouraged, man. Thanks. You know, call those word hugs, you know. (laughs) Not a hugger, but I'll word hug you. Okay, go for it, you know. Um, Got myself in trouble after first service because everyone just didn't know what to do with me. Are you going to hug me? Are you going to kiss me? I don't know what to do right now. Everyone was going out the side door. It was hard. (laughs) But may we be encouraged to represent Jesus in this community by, man, just affection, showing affection in holiness and in purity. You know, I always loved growing up in the church, you know, and, and in the youth group, the rule was, all right, guys, if you're going to hug a girl, you do a quick side hug, you know, as the last couple, you know, but just purity. There's no questions. I'm not, you know, not messing around. Just, man, I love my sister here, you know, uh, good things like that. It's always in purity. It's always according to the scriptures. And so he, he just embraced these disciples. He loved the disciples there in Ephesus, and he departed to go to Macedonia. Now, when he'd gone over that region... I mean, encouraged them with many words. Something Paul always did as he traveled through the churches. He came to Greece and stayed there three months. And when the Jews plotted against him, no surprise, as he went about to sail to Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. And Sobatar of Berea accompanied him to Asia. Also Aristarchus and Segundus of the Thessalonians and Gaius of Derby and Timothy and Tychicus and Trophimus of Asia. These men going ahead waited for us at Troas. So he has kind of this entourage with him to take this gift from the Macedonians down to the hurting church in Judea. And uh, you can read about that in 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9. Uh, And uh, verse 6, but we sailed away from Philippi after the the days of unleavened bread in the springtime, and in five days joined them at Troas, 
where we stayed seven days. Verse 7, Now on the first day of the week, when the disciples had come together to break bread, uh, Paul, ready to part the next day, spoke to them and continued his message until midnight. So, really been praying that I wouldn't take up the example of Paul today and, you know, do some six-hour Bible study or something, but I might. Who knows? We'll see. I'll read you guys, see if you're up for it. Um, but we see they met on the first day of the week. You know, good thing to underline, good thing to note, because what we have here is a change in over 1,500 years of, of law, you know, of worshiping on the Sabbath, the, the, the final day of the week, and keeping it holy. And where was that change where these Jews like Paul, a Benjamin of Benjamites, you know, circumcised on the eighth day and a Jew of the Jews, Philippians chapter three, you know, how did he go from being that to, hey, let's worship on Sunday instead? I think it was this thing called the resurrection, the resurrection that took place on the Sunday, the first day of the week. We see that set for us, that standard set for us by the early church there uh, as, uh, as they celebrated the resurrection, something that we're going to be doing in just a few weeks. And it says that uh, they went to, came together to break bread, continuing Acts chapter 2, verse 42, as they continued steadfastly in the, in the uh, apostles' doctrine, in breaking bread and fellowship and in prayers, still happening there in Troas. And as Paul was bringing the apostles' doctrine, he continued his message until midnight. If he started at 6 that evening, it was a good at least six-hour Bible study happening there. And then we read, There were many lamps in the upper room where they were gathered together. And in a window sat a certain young man named Eutychus, who was sinking into a deep sleep. He was overcome by sleep. And as Paul continued speaking, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. Some of you have made, uh, may have heard of some of those popular new redneck words. Um, not sure if you have or not, but let me just give you a few, okay? Mayonnaise, okay? Mayonnaise, a lot of people here this morning, okay? Aorta. Aorta cut the grass down by the ball field so the kids don't get hurt. Here in Acts chapter 20, we see another one, Eutychus. Eutychus too, if you would have fallen out of the third story window. <laughs> there were more, but they didn't go over very well in first service, so. So here we have Eutychus, you know, like so many of us, it's a syndrome within the church, you know, it happens at the pulse all the time. You're kind of like, someone's starting to breathe heavy, and you're kind of like, I'm not sure if they're praying really hard, or, ah, we'll let it, so, you know, men's group, you know, it happens, we're humans, it's okay. You'll get jabbed with my sharp pocket knife in the, you know, side, but, you know, it happens to all of us, and the encouraging thing is that when he fell out of the window, Paul went out there and just lovingly in verse 10, he went down and fell on him and embraced him. There's that word again, took him up in his arms and said, do not trouble yourselves for his life is in him. Now, when he had come up, he'd broken bread and eaten. They talked a long while, even till daybreak. So it was an all nighter and he departed and they brought the young man in alive and they were not a little comforted. And so, so neat that Eutychus 
was uh, this experience was something that just confirmed to this church the power of the Lord. All throughout the book of Acts, we read of signs and wonders and healings taking place, and they always validate the gospel. They always confirm the words spoken of by Paul. And while this was just an accident during a Bible study, it shows us the danger of falling asleep in church, so you better hop up on caffeine and all that before you come in. You never know what will happen. He falls out the window, he dies, and yet through his healing here, these guys are encouraged to see, man, this just validates our faith. Look how good God is. Our little Eutychus. Man, I thought he was dead. And, and oh, such encouragement and comfort. There is encouragement, encouragement to see healings and to read of these healings. And I was just reminded of Luke chapter 5 this morning of Jesus preaching in the house there. And uh, I think it was Capernaum, north of the Sea of Galilee. And as he's preaching in this packed house, you know, those friends brought the paralytic And they ripped off the roof of this house and they lowered down this friend to Jesus by ropes. And as the guy gets down there, the first thing that Jesus says to him is, Hey, my son, be encouraged. Your sins are forgiven you. And the the Pharisees got all angry. And who does this guy think he is? He has the power to forgive sins? And Jesus said to them, Hey, what's harder? To say, rise up and walk? Or to say your sins are forgiven you? It's harder to say rise up and walk because it's got to happen right there. I can tell anybody their sins are forgiven you. Bless you, bless you. Your sins are all forgiven you. But he says, hey, to prove that the Son of Man has power on the earth to forgive sins, rise up and walk. And the guy got up and walked and he picked up his bed. And it validated that not only is Jesus God and he's able to heal somebody from paralyzation in an instant, but he's able to say, hey, Your sins are forgiven you in an instant. What an encouragement to us today that yes, God is able to heal our bodies if he's willing and we're to pray for that healing and pray for his will to be done. But he's also a God that's able to forgive you at the drop of the hat. The gospel is confirmed that we're saved by grace, a free gift of God through faith in what the Lord Jesus has done. And if you come in this door today and you've got baggage on, man, you are carrying a burden of all the sins that you've done and you are ashamed and you have a guilty conscience and you can hardly look at me right now. You feel like in the church, everyone else is holy and I am sinful and not even worth. Hey, you know what? Lay that burden down at the foot of the cross and be encouraged because the God that can heal Eutychus is the God that forgives sins and you can be forgiven today. And you know what? Talking with a guy yesterday who just shared with me just his baggage, his sin, and just was weeping and just longed to be forgiven. And I grabbed him in my arms and I wept with him. I said, I'm a hugger, man. We've been there at church tomorrow. You know, I said, hey, you know that Jesus forgives you, right? You know you're forgiven in Christ. Yes, I know that, but I just, I can't forgive myself. I'm so thankful for that passage that says, brothers, if our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and he knows all things. He's our high priest who's in heaven right now. He's ascended so that he can ever live to intercede for you right now and to bear witness to the father. He's mine. She's mine. They're forgiven. Receive that forgiveness. Don't just know, yeah, he's forgiven me, but I just can't receive. Receive it. Hebrews tells us that he has cleansed our conscience from an evil conscience. So receive that cleansing today. Steward and you guys, you can come on up.
And we'll close with that here. You put your Bibles down. Let's just pray. Let's just go into an attitude of prayer right now. And, and just right now where you're at, you know the burden on your back. You know just how you're feeling with your conscience. And, and maybe you've never rested on Jesus and the work that he did on the cross when he shed his blood for you. You've never rested on that in his resurrection to prove that what he said was true. And today you would just lay your burden down at the foot of the cross and you would take up the new life that's in Christ that he won for you when he rose from the dead. I encourage you right now that in faith, just even maybe just whisper or confess out loud, but just confess with your mouth, say, Lord, I rest in you this morning. I rest in what you did on the cross. I'm encouraged today that the God who's able to heal Eutychus and heal the paralytic and heal the blind and the deaf and the lame and the maimed, that he does all that to validate the point that he forgives sins. And Lord, today, I receive forgiveness of sins. I ask that you'll wash me clean. You'll place your Holy Spirit within me as a guarantee that I'm saved. And you'll give me power to live the life that's worthy of your name. As we sing, you can just keep praying that to the Lord and just enjoy that time with the Lord of getting right with the Lord. It's a special time right now in your life, the most important time in your life. And as we just close today, let's just shout to the Lord cry to him in intercession let's plead with the Lord to do a great work in Prineville that will change this town in dramatic ways all across the board the authorities, the economy the media the people the stores the hobbies let's just cry out for the Lord to do what we just hardly even have the faith to pray. Let's cry out over our city. Oh, Prineville, oh, Prineville. Won't you let the Lord bring you under his wings like a hen gathers his chicks? So, so many ways to respond to Jesus today. Let's just stand and close in this song. You've been listening to Pastor Rory Rogers, pastor of Calvary Chapel of Crook County, located in Prineville, Oregon. For more information on this ministry, or if you'd like to contribute, please feel free to write to us at P.O. Box 378, Prineville, Oregon 97754, or check us out further on our website at www.calvarycrookcounty.com. We thank you so much for listening, and we pray that this ministry has blessed you.